Welcome to the Rebecca Panapinto Project. Today, I'm excited to interview a very interesting cybersecurity personality, and his name is Nir. Nir is a seasoned information security leader with extensive information technology, information security, and strategic security planning expertise. He is currently heading the data security department at Booking.com and previously served as the CISO of the company now known as Finero. Nier also serves as a board advisor for multiple different cybersecurity startups and loves helping them shape their products and services to achieve the optimum business results that they're after. We talk a lot about this today, as well as some very interesting projects that Nier is involved in. As a bonus, Nier is a musician in his spare time. Enjoy the show. Nier, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Rebecca? Life is good. And you probably have one of the coolest backgrounds of anybody I've had on the show. Yeah, thank you. Those are metal printed posters of, you know, astronomy, which I really, really like. That is very cool. As every technologist I've talked to on the show, many different passions and areas of interest in your life. So I love that we get to see a piece of that. And I'm excited today to talk about some other areas of interest, but Let's start with what you do day in and day out and how much you love data and security and what you're doing in the e-commerce industry. So let's start there with your background leading to where you are, how you're impacting travel. Well, how do you define digital transformation and what are you looking to make an impact in the data security space today? Yeah, so a quick background. So today I'm working for Booking.com, currently heading the uh, data security capability area or track or department, if you like. Um, so it is a very challenging role, as you can guess, that Booking.com holds a lot of data, you know, in its um, systems and, and assets in general. And that means that I have a lot of challenge. We have a lot of challenge, you know, to protect the data, provide the proper compliance, um, you know, address privacy concerns and make certain that the business would be enabled and would move forward quick enough, uh, having the connected trip all together and all in a secure, compliant and resilient way. So that makes it very, very challenging when we're talking about a very high scale company with high scale data sets, if you will. Uh, And that's why I'm there because I'm really passionate about those challenges and I'm bringing a lot of my, let's say, um, skills and experience and knowledge, you know, to to the area of how we can make it in high scale and more than that, how we can make it effective because at all times you need to balance between, you know, security requirements, operational requirements, business requirements, sometimes compliance requirements, which might pull into different direction. Um, So yeah, these are my key challenges. And to your key question about the the digital transformation aspect, let's say it like that. There is a reason why companies like Booking.com, you know, holds a lot of data because back in the days, the data or the data assets weren't straightforward. You had a lot of processes for the key businesses, let's say traveling business to work in a bit of a different way. Let's call it the non-digital way or partially digital. And when it's non-digital or partially digital, the challenges are also, let's say, milder. When it comes to everything which is fully 100% or 200%, if you will, like digital and online and on the internet and exposed to each and every consumer around the world, and especially for company like Booking.com, that makes that challenge even bigger. And that requires a lot of attention, both on the operations side of things, how to make scaled systems which can be resilient from availability perspective and to provide the right service, fast and reliable. But on the other hand, you have the security aspects, which also bound or bind a bit with the privacy aspect, which means 
how you can protect people's privacy or individual privacy alongside protecting the business assets in a way that you can stay resilient and competitive. That's good. When I think about the travel agency world too, and how much it has changed just in the past three, four years as a consumer, like I'm impatient and I want the digital key on my phone, but how the heck do you get a digital key on your phone and not introduce a ton of security risk? And it's just funny to think about how life used to be working through travel agents and having everything be super manual. Now it is very digital. And a lot of folks that are on the go, on the run, traveling, have this very low tolerance for (laughs) patients in this scenario but also cannot risk their credit card being stolen, their hotel key being stolen and all these different things. So walk me through some ways that you think about that. How do you say, Hey, we want to make this digital experience extremely easy for the consumer, but we also can't risk them losing their identity when they go to Florida for vacation. Yeah. So I think I, I will divide it into two different aspects, but still addressing the same problem, if you will, or challenge. One aspect is that you mentioned specifically the identity or even like hotels identity and the fact that those could be misused, hacked, exploited and so on. And that's a big problem, by the way, not necessarily for the OTA companies directly like the online travel agencies, but more for the companies which provides that secure identity by phone. Because at the end of the day, those solutions, even though those are third parties for the hotels and other partners, those are solutions which are being used you know, toward, for being more kind of innovative and to provide better service for the customer. And yes, those could be risky, but not necessarily handled by the travel industry, if you will. So that's one aspect of the problem, which needs to be addressed by those security companies, which provide secure identity with phone and other sort of means. The other uh, part that I wanted to mention here is, you know, some people call it Web 3.0 or those kind of things. Um, we call it the connected trip. Now, in the context of security and what you've asked, I think the big challenge as of today is like, so let's say there's the customer journey. You as a customer can book a hotel in in, uh, online travel agency like booking.com, but then that travel agency needs to connect with another partner, which, which could be an hotel or hotel network, which connect with another third party, which let's say taking care of the um, room identity, as we've just mentioned, or can take care of the uh, card, credit card uh, acquiring or like acting as a payment service provider in that sense, because that's also part of the booking process to, you know, to pay for that booking and other partners and other third parties which also participating in that game. And having all of those third parties connected together, communicating together, where some of them might be, let's say, partially trusted because at the end of the day, it is a third party for your business. That means that you need to have a lot of extra protections and extra means to make all of that dance to go smooth as possible and to avoid any misuses either by any third party insider threat or any other third party, which act as a threat actor, which might influence that complete dance, if you will, that channel, that full process, which involves a lot of data flows, which at the end of the day, provide the experience for the consumer, you know, to book a hotel or any other service from a company like booking.com and enjoying all of those services in a very automated and a very efficient manner. So 
the fact that you need to take care of all of the security aspects of those flows and those connectivities, that makes it a huger challenge if you consider that or comparing that to what we had, let's say, 15 years ago or 10 years ago, where it was much more easier and you had pretty simple digital processes because those were only partial digital. That's good. Yeah, I think of a experience I had too where there's a fine line of a balance between having the situation be extremely secure, but also a good user experience. Um, I had one third party group I used to book a hotel. They will not be named. I can assure you it was not the one you and I are most familiar with. Um, but I booked through them. I paid them. I get to the hotel. I go to check out. They didn't pay the hotel. Mm. So then I'm like on the hook to an extent. I can't get a hold of the right people. Terrible customer experience. And not only am I frustrated with the third party group that messed it up, I'm now frustrated with the hotel. And I can guarantee you, I will never say that at that hotel again, even though they did nothing wrong other than they didn't help escalate the situation to get a good customer experience. But how do you find that balance? Because when it comes to travel, I want a top notch customer experience. If I'm ever going to return to that situation before, but I also don't want my privacy and security being put at risk or a situation where I realize like somebody didn't come through with what they needed to do or their credit card was declined. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you find that balance? Cause I know you're a customer service oriented person. You're not just like, it's always rules process security and privacy first, but yeah. how, what is that give and take? How do you find that balance to make sure you're giving a good user experience at every single travel engagement? First of all, you need to understand the, the business impact of one or more incidents which can happen and can lead to a business damage. Now, by saying that, I mean, let's take your example and let's divide it also into two parts because I still distinguish between two aspects of that. One aspect is the liability, the, the legal liability, if you will, and, you know, between the, the, the hotel and the online travel agency or equivalent. And you know, as much as you have mutual contractual clauses or you know, just the right contract to define what will happen if something will go wrong from this or that perspective, that liability aspect could be covered. So the legal part should address that issue. But in my opinion, that's not the key, let's say that, that's not the big concern. The, the big challenge, I call it concern, but maybe it's more of a challenge if you will, because it's still resolvable. Uh, is the reputational aspect. And you touched a bit about it because, and by the way, I want to surprise you or not, it's a bi-directional path because just to give you the example uh, or continue your example, it could be that you've booked an hotel through an online travel agency and then you went to the hotel and something was wrong from the hotel perspective. It could be bad reputation for the online travel agency, not necessarily for the hotel directly or both. But it could be also vice versa. It could be that your online travel agency did something wrong or got hacked, or the problem was with the online travel agency and your kind of, you know, the, the reputation effect was also affecting the hotel that you wanted to book because it was post booking. So what I'm trying to say, the fact that you have multiple parties or at least two parties to play in that journey of you like to book an accommodation or equivalent, it plays a bi-directional game where one problem with one entity could affect the reputation of the other entity and vice versa. And when it comes to security, it works exactly like that. If the hotel getting hacked 
but let's say the online travel, uh, travel agency data was leaked and someone is going to mention that as it was the data of the online travel agency that was leaked, it's going to affect that their uh, reputation. And if it's going to be their leakage, but their leakage is going to include the hotel information, it might affect the hotel reputation as a result of that. So the end game is that it's a bi-directional um, effect and both parties need to be clearly aware of that and also need to put the right expectations for how the other party is protecting themselves against cyber threats or other sort of, let's say, threats that needs to be addressed or at least controlled. Very interesting. I'd never thought of a hotel wanting to introduce, you know, digital opportunity into a situation, also introducing that much more risk. And it's it's just a risk they have to be willing to take and a really good probably vetting process of their partners and being strategic and maybe starting with one before you go to another, making sure you're with the best of the best can decrease that risk because yeah, like again, my, my, not my reputation, but my opinion of the reputation of that hotel was decreased of no fault of their own. And, uh, but that's part of the reputational aspect. Reputation is something subjective because it's how people perceive that brand, that entity or that incident that happened to that entity, regardless of the facts sometimes. Yeah, that's good. So I know everybody's sick of talking about the topic, but I just, I still need your perspective because you're so deep in the industry, but how about COVID and all this, like the last two years, what curveballs did you learn from that scenario of, you know, insurance not covering certain things and people canceling or hotels canceling, you know, we can't even get, unfortunately, a hotel room serviced every day anymore just because staffing issues and COVID concerns, things like that. What were some of the curveballs, maybe top one or two, that you saw in the last two years that you had to be ready to respond to? Yeah, well, let's start with uh, an important fact. I'm not a travel expert and I'm not pretending to be, but I do want to provide you some useful insights about a similar aspect related to COVID and the things that I saw from my prison. Since I'm, you know, my business is data security in that industry, the one big thing that I could see from the beginning of COVID and what it kind of influenced the, the industry and the, let's say the mode of operation for employees working from abroad, working from home, just working remotely, if you will, the big change was that a lot of the risks and the threats, uh, let's say scenarios or attack scenarios, got changed because now if some scenarios were related to an employee which works from their office necessarily or mainly or mostly, and with that, the attack vectors just needed to be focused on the employee at the office. And as much as they could fish that employee or the, their entities, if you will, they could get the, the holy grail. Now it's a bit different because now everyone allegedly could connect from everywhere. So it's not really everyone, it's employees, it might be partners, it might be contractors, but the other part of connecting from everywhere, it's mainly valid for most of the companies in the world as of today. So it's also yielding a lot of new, again, attack scenarios, which yesterday were very scoped to a very narrowed space, if you will, and now it's everywhere. Everyone uses VPN, everyone has zero trust or equivalent kind of solutions so they can provide their employees or contractors to connect remotely. And if yesterday, pre-COVID period, they could connect remotely and to have, let's say, limited access to the network assets, 
Today, it's a bit different because the approach, the mindset, or I would even say the default mindset is that, hey, tomorrow could be COVID 2.0, if you will. And then it might be even more harsh in a way that people are going to work from home like for years. Again, I really hope it's not going to happen, but we already seen a lot of surprises in the world lately. And considering that part, it could might also kind of change the current attack vector to be even different because maybe new solutions would need to be built. So in that context, I can tell you that the attack vectors was changed, the remediation and the ways to address those attacks or those threats were a bit different and got different prioritization than before COVID. And the main and very interesting question that I'm super curious about is what the near future is going to yield for us. Because if we saw what COVID did to the digital transformation so quickly, I wonder how it's going to be the next version of that even though I'm not really hoping for that radical incident that will happen to the world. Yeah, no, I agree. I think we've had enough for a couple yeah. of years <laughs> for, I mean, for my life right now, I'm like, I'm the capacity for uh, craziness and curveballs for sure. Um, yeah. No, that's good. And I love your perspective on it. I think there's an element too, of thinking about the user experience and customer experience, because when I'm traveling and I do need to work from a hotel and I have to get on the VPN, oh my gosh, can I only do one thing at a time? So seeing advancements in that technology, I'm really looking forward to it still being as secure, but I can function in a hotel as seamlessly as I do from my home office where I have a lot of really strong Wi-Fi and good connections. That's good. I want to shift gears now a little bit to all of the interesting things you're doing in the industry overall. I mean, you're consulting with all kinds of different startups, all kinds of people come to you wanting your perspective on this new idea they have, this niche in the industry that they're tackling. Tell us some of the things that you're seeing with some of these companies. And I know you really look at it from this privacy data and security perspective, but also from an investor perspective. And like, you want these people to be successful financially. So what are some of these interesting projects that you're looking at right now and how do you analyze like who's going to be successful and who might need to keep their day job? Yeah, well, I wouldn't call that projects which I'm looking for, but you know, as you've mentioned in the beginning of of your question, like I had a lot of interactions with many, many, many startups from all around the world, talking about hundreds over hundreds, like real numbers of security startups, like the majority of them were security startups in different domains. And the main thing that I'm trying to do with those companies, first and foremost, to understand what they're offering and how what they're offering can be beneficial for, let's say, the the companies I work for at the moment or for any other problems that maybe my colleagues are now encountering with and I would like to help them. So that could be like the, the, the initial standpoint. But on the other aspect of that, I'm also trying to help them with providing them some feedbacks, useful, constructive feedbacks about what's relevant, what's less relevant, what makes more sense from go-to-market perspective, what makes sense from uh, a product market fit perspective, you know, which things may be a bit kind of um, acting as early early birds, early adopters. I don't know how to call it because some of the startups provides very interesting and useful solutions, but their timing is a bit poor because sometimes they're just arriving too soon they don't really have the, the, the customer base or the audience or the market that's pretty much understand that they need those particular solutions. And those startups could fall, but those startups, if they're you know, the handling wisely, they can also uh, getting the right funds, 
having the right shifts to you know combine the innovative things and the things which are maybe too soon to be uh, you know provided to the market alongside let's call it the traditional things with a punch with an addition with uh, you know with some added value now taking that hybrid approach helped them to get some better kind of you know um, you know injection if you will get a better injection to the industry understanding you know so the market can understand them and what they're offering starting with that thing that they're well familiar with with that added value alongside trying to get familiarized with the new concept that those companies provide and then that helps those companies to bring those new features and that innovative things to those companies and to the industry and that's what in the end of the day also helps to create new factor not factors but more like you know new new hypes but new hypes in the context of if yesterday we had i don't know application security and people talk about web application firewall like WAF devices all around the world and that was the big hype then it moved to other topics it could be later on things like uh, static code analysis uh, secure code development life cycle then you know it could be api security so things there are new hypes every time and a lot of startups are trying to you know get up the trend and try, trying to provide the state-of-the-art solutions for that. Those which are having the exact timing and they have the right team, I think those are the startups which has the most better chance you know, to succeed. Because of course, having the best team, it's always good, but having the right timing, it's not always you know, perceived or understood well for the co-founders which you know trying to build that startup. Sometimes they think, hey, I'm innovative, I'm going to be the first one to, to, you know, to bring it to the market. But sometimes they're just staying alone because no one understands what they're bringing. And not because it's not useful, because, you know, it's too early sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of my key insights of all of my uh, discussions that I had with many, many, many startups. And I also, you know, on the time that I can already retrospect, I can look back and say some of them doesn't exist anymore. Some of them are very exciting, very successful succeeding now. So with that, what I'm trying to say, I think that um, there is some sort of, um, not a decrease, but better understanding of specific you know, entrepreneurs about, hey, if we have a great idea, maybe we can combine it with an existing idea, or maybe we can just wait a bit of a time and only then go with the go-to-market strategy and get all over the market with a new solution. That's good. And you hit on a great example of timing being a big key to it all. Um, it's interesting things with what's going on with crypto and Bitcoin and things like that. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are diving headfirst in really fast, but it's because they're already really wealthy. <laughs> if you just dive in too fast right now and you're not, then it's a long play game to seeing the upside. And so it's a, it's a fine balance of that Product market fit, yes, a great team, especially leadership team. But if you don't have the good timing, it could be painful. And then you could die before you even have a real good shot at becoming the next whatever you want to be. Yeah, that's completely correct. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about your philosophy around building a really good team, because you have an amazing one with what you're doing today. How do you find that good talent? And more importantly, how do you keep that good talent? Well, let's start with the fact that I'm all over the digital space, if you will, starting from LinkedIn, moving to other platforms and social communities 
And I'm just trying to combine both hunting them by myself with having the assistance of my partners in the organization, which helped me, which is their designated role, if you will. And of course, using colleagues, friends, ex-colleagues, ex-managers, if you will, that can also help me to, to get the right people. I'm just doing everything I can just to bring the right people to our organization and to my organization in specific, because I really believe that we have really amazing things that we're not only currently doing, but we're going to do as well. And for a security professional, what we're doing is, is concretely something, you know, that I can promise someone that is knocking on our door and asking, hey, do you have a great challenge, you know, to do around the security, specifically data security? I can say certainly, yes, we have a lot of data to protect. We have a lot of challenges and we have a lot of innovative opportunities you know, to influence on the strategy of data security, at least within the organization I'm working in as of today. That's good. So not only are you always recruiting, which I think is brilliant and that's what a good leader should do, but you offer them big problems to solve, which yeah. in today's day and age, that's what people really want to have some form of purpose and excitement to get up and go to work every day. That's correct. But you know, also don't forget there are two types of challenges. There are challenges which are not building, not constructive. And there are challenges which are helping you to grow. You know, challenges which you can practically overcome. And those are what I call objective challenges. It's not like someone put an obstacle and you're just running, you know, on the mouse hole, just trying to resolve things which are just irrelevant because that's also sometimes happening in some organizations, at least according to my experience from previous places. But, you know, the right type of challenges, as I call them, the constructive ones, those are the best challenges ever because those are not only authentic, but those are resolvable and provides a lot of kind of, you know, adventure and a lot of challenge, if you will, to the people which are trying to provide solutions for them. Mm. And that makes it very interesting and very fulfilling for the people which are working on those challenges. And that's where I'm really, really proud of my people working on those challenges and doing a state-of-the-art activity, you know, in order to better protect our data assets in the company. That is a great perspective and an awesome strategy as a leader for you to keep a really engaged, high-performing team that will stay with you through the long run, I'm sure, especially through the craziness, ups and downs of the last couple of years of the great resignation, able to give these folks some kind of fulfilling work is going to keep them committed as well as in the remote environment. It's harder and harder to build culture and feel connected and keep, you know, folks that are highly technical engaged. Um, but I think you've been able to do that very successfully. And it's because you got really fun, big challenges to solve together. Yeah, and it's even, you know, funner if you're doing it in an intercultural kind of environment like where I'm mm -hmm. working as of today, because mm -hmm. you're working with, you know, many, many different cultures. And I find it super exciting, not only on a personal level, but also practically, you know, on the way that we can brainstorm together, bringing different prisms, different opinions, different mindsets. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the real exciting thing. You can build great stuff with working with different people from different cultures, with different disciplines, which makes it even greater. And that's what makes me happier each and every morning. Very cool. That's awesome. Before long, you'll have people working there from the moon and <laughs> still helping you secure data in the US. Won't that be a crazy time when we get there? <laughs> I don't think it's that far off, right? I really hope. 
Yeah, I really hope that I'm going to live in that era when people are going to work remotely from space. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. Well, let's switch gears a little bit now to all of these other interesting things you do outside of working really, really hard. Musician, wine, like obviously space and astronomy. I, I think you're kind of like me. It's just you don't stop and the interest always continues to build. And when you find something interesting, you have to go spend some time in it. So tell us about first the music. What's your background there? And what are you doing with your musical abilities today? Well, formally, very minimal. I mean, I had a lot of self-study when I was a little child, you know, flutes, recorders, piano, keyboard. Well, not fully self-learning. I took maybe three, four classes, but all of the other parts were completed by myself alone, like really self-learning. So that was that part. And I also studied composition, again, self-study and everything. Then I had the opportunity to learn music in high school, but it wasn't like, you know, practice. It wasn't the hands-on part of how to play. It was more about all of the theoretical aspects, you know, uh, beyond it, which means, you know, like a music theory, the history of music and all of those kind of things, music literature. And I really liked it and I found it very interesting. And the long story short is that I started to some level when I started my career to work in music, having make a money of music. But after a short time, I found that it might make more sense that I will focus my career on, let's call it the high-tech industry, if you will, where music is going to keep my key, my primary hobby. And that's what it is as of today. So today, I don't really have a lot of time to invest in that. But when I do have, and when I do make the, the, the selection to prioritize that time for that, I'm playing a lot on, again, keyboards, piano. Also, I'm a bit singing a couple of songs in multiple languages. Yeah, as much as I'm capable, of course. And um, yeah, I find it very enjoyable. I really wish that I'm going to find more time and, you know, have more space, you know, to play more, not only self-playing, but also working with some bands here in the Netherlands and just having, you know, good times with other musicians playing together, jamming together, and maybe even performing somewhere in the near future. Very cool. I think all of us musicians have this realization one day that, you know, kind of need money to eat and live (laughs) and so music goes into the hobby category but you can't stop because of the creativity it allows you to express which I think gives a lot of relief from the day-to-day of what you're doing which is you know very taxing mentally Um, so I think it's a great balance to go play a little music here and there pop in with the band Um, you know a lot of technical folks are musical as well so putting a band in the context of work has been really valuable to help with the, you know, the teaming aspect and the bonding and things like that. So I love that you still dabble and um, are still, you know, exercising that creativity. And I would say for the most part, I was self-educated on it as well. Like I definitely had an instructor off and on, but YouTube was my biggest education and just watching these incredible drummers play whatever song I wanted to learn over YouTube. And then I could replicate that myself and then I knew the song. Yeah, and it is very nice, very exciting that you can do it on your own. And then you can also listen to that afterwards and you can play with other people. And as you mentioned by yourself, maybe in a different wording, it's for the soul. It's not like any other work, which might be also very, you can be emotional about it because you care about it, but it's a different type of emotions, if you will. It's not like with music, when you're playing, when you're performing, it's, it's just different type of passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
How about your wine passion? Tell us a little bit about that and your vision for your future yeah. wine business. So I think like 14, no, yeah, 14 years ago, about 14 years ago, I fell in love with red wines and I will explain which extent. It's not like that I started to be a drinker, but it's more about I started to appreciate wine tastes and specifically red wine tastes. So I started to research a lot, learn about the different grapes kinds and, you know, different uh, type of wineries and different type of terroirs in other countries and, you know, from different regions and climates and just different tastes, if you will. And I started to be connected to the, to the experience of, you know, to the whole ceremony of, you know, drinking, opening a red wine, you know, a new bottle that you never tasted. Sometimes even reading the story or listening to the story from first person, it could be the sommelier in the restaurant. It could be the winery, the, the winery person, which practically produced those wines. And, you know, I'm really connected to that because that's something tangible. You can, you can feel it, you can sense it. And if you have the right resolution, you know, to identify the different subtastes, if you will, that makes it even more interesting and exciting sometimes, because you can find state-of-the-art wines, which can be really, really, really nice, uh, you know, from taste perspective. And again, don't forget also on the social side, having the right bottle of wine on the right social event, it's also something which kind of, you know, I would say accelerating the, the, the fun and enjoyment in the room. Um, so yeah, that's also that. And I had a lot of opportunities since that 14 years ago time to visit a lot of, you know, wine regions around the world from Napa Valley through Victoria in Australia and uh, Loire Valley in France and other many areas, also in Israel and other places around the world. And I found it very, very interesting for me. So that's where I'm also kind of collecting wines, sometimes rare wines, sometimes what I call the uh, casual wines, if you will, but the right mm -hmm. casual, because even in that category, you have many subcategories of what's a decent, you know, like a casual wine and what's really uh, over commodity in a way that you might like to avoid it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in that context, I find it very interesting and yeah, I am planning to continue with that passion and, or you can even call it with that hobby, if you will. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. Some people drink for the alcohol and to get drunk. And we were talking about your slight coffee addiction earlier too, that <laughs> for you, it's not so much about what's in it. It's not the caffeine, it's the experience. And I'm the same way with wine. I, I favor white over red, but it's about the experience. It's about the people bringing them into something more and experiencing just a journey of the history of that wine and the taste and whatever food it's matched with. That's all so much more exciting than the buzz and like, you know, getting drunk. That's never been the intrigue of alcohol for me. It's been, I want to have a very good bottle of wine or for me, a very good bourbon cup of coffee fits, fits the description as well. It's the experience, it's the people, it's the social that makes it all so much more exciting and intriguing than just the contents of what's in it. Yeah, I'm completely with you about it. I would say even more than that, you know, I'm not really a person which gets drunk, but let's say it like that. If I would like to do it, probably red wine wouldn't be my first choice. Like that's not what it is for, at least from my perspective. But the good thing is that I'm not, you know, looking for getting drunk or something. I just like, as you mentioned by yourself, the experience, the taste, the smells, the people, the atmosphere, and also, you know, the research, as I've already mentioned, like where that wine came from, what was the full process, where that wine kind of, I don't know, rest for a couple of years 
you know, kind of oak barrels or things like that, which type of oak and all of those things, which I find very interesting for me. Because again, I kind of connecting the dots of, let's call it the, the, the practical knowledge, if you will, or the factual knowledge of the wine. And with that, you know, what I can sense from drinking that wine and combining both together makes it even more enjoyable, at least for me. Yeah, well, that's interesting. It's funny how alcohol sometimes is about inhibiting your senses, but to really fully engage in an amazing alcohol experience, you actually have to have full awareness of all those senses and be able to understand the smells and the tastes. And um, yeah, it's an interesting passion. I'm right there with you. I think I'm a few years behind you in in my experience with it, but a huge fan of wine. And I think it's a great place to spend time to, again, build these relationships and, and experiences together. Yeah. I have one final question for you now. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this. It's around principles. And I want to hear from you. What is a core principle that you've lived by to be successful in business? Um, Again, I'm not talking as an entrepreneur, but more as a leader within an organization. But I think if I would need to call out really like two of those, that would be the following main things. Like one thing would be the first question. Are we providing our customers what they really need. And by the way, don't get it wrong, but by saying customers, customers could be anyone. It could be like, mm-hmm. let's call it the traditional consumer, if you are a B2C organization, but it could be also your business customer, which is a third party, even an internal customer within the organization. I don't know, the legal department, the core platforms department, any other business unit which needs some service from you. So that would be the one principle that I will always take. Now, the second one, which is, I think we've a bit discussed about it earlier when we've talked about talents and everything, but that was about the question, which is, are we attracting the right talents in a way that, or let me even put it differently. Are we attractive enough so we can attract the right talents to come to work with us? Because sometimes you think that you are great but you are not that great. Or maybe you are that great, but not everyone aware of that. And if we take the concrete example of maybe you have a great organization and it's really great to work for your organization or your team or your track or department, but when you're looking for talents, they are not aware of that because you don't have that reputational part, let's say, exposed to the industry. And by saying industry, Again, from my standpoint, I'm not talking about the travel industry in that case, I'm talking about the security industry, because I would like, if I would like to attract security talents, I would like that my brand, either my personal brand as a leader or my, let's say, per, or, the orga- or the organizational security brand, if one of them or both of them are going to be, you know, with high reputation, positive reputation, that's significantly going to help me to better attract talents around the world. So those two principles are key for me as a leader within a big organization. That is awesome. And I think you have such a good perspective, not only earlier were you kind of saying you're always a recruiter, you're always looking for talent and people, but right there, I think you're just alluding to, you're also in sales. Like even though you're very technical and you do amazing work around data and security, you see that you've got to be always recruiting and always selling to still be successful in the ecosystem that you live in. I would call you a linchpin within the organization that you serve, but you understand all those different elements and the soft skills that it takes to still be a very successful technologist. So I commend you on that. I think you're such an inspiration. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure. Thank you for hosting me, Rebecca.
Yeah, we'll talk again soon here. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you.